All right, good morning. You heard my voice say, don't be harassing me. If you were listening, if you were online, you heard that. It was my boy trying to tell me how to work the remote here. But anyway, and I said, don't be harassing me before I preach. I'll get, I'll get even because I'm the one that gets to speak last, right? No. Welcome this morning. We're so glad you're here, and we're in a series uh, on transforming our church. We're coming up with a new mission statement for our church as a whole. We're trying to refocus our life instead of this concept of making more and better disciples, which we think is a great thing, but we don't even really know how to explain that, do we? We do know one thing, that we can be very clear that we exist to do what? To point people to Jesus. And that's what we want to do. And we know that if our life is effective, if our church is effective, there's five major things that come out in our life, both individually and in a church. And we've been talking our way through these. Last week we talked about love. This week we're going to talk about growth or growing as a believer. Then we're going to take a little break for Easter. You all want to hear a Palm Sunday message, I know. And you want to hear a resurrection service message. So two-week break, then I'm going to finish the last three, and while I'm here, I'll go ahead and get my commercial in for the very next sermon series. Let me just say this up front, that as a pastor, I'm very concerned with what's going on in our culture. I'm concerned with what's going on in the church, in the hearts and the minds of people, with all of this stuff that you and I live in. It's so important that somebody actually gave me a book here, and unbeknownst to them, I had actually been reading and studying it on myself. But we're going to buy a bunch of books, and we're going to go through this series together. And basically, the concept is, what in the world is going on here? Everything that we hear, we're inundated with a word that you're going to hear, and I'm going to say it, it's Marxism. Do you understand what Marxism is? Do you understand what is being taught in universities today. I mean, I have kids in college, and I, I read their assignments. Marxism initially started off as an economic somewhat uh, thing that to turn equality. But Marxism has now been taken and extracted from the economic side, and it has been turned into cultural Marxism. Now, do you understand what that means? If you don't, let me just give you a couple of terms. Critical race theory has come out of cultural Marxism, and it's infiltrated itself all the way down into the curriculum of children. It's filtered its way all the way onto your TV screen so that everything you hear and see is seen through the lens of cultural Marxism. And Christians are sitting back like someone who's opened their mouth and being hit with a fire hose. We don't have a clue what in the world to do. It's just it's like it's come from nowhere and we're pinned up against the wall. And my responsibility as a pastor, you know, used to people would look to a pastor to say, what in the world is going on, pastor, and how do we live in light of what's happening here in a way that honors God? My job is not to try to save the culture, okay? That is not my job. My job is to try and help the church. We need help. And so in several weeks, we're going to address this, and it's going to be several weeks to get through it because we need time to process this and figure out what's going on and how we are to respond. I mean, God does not want us just to sit and do nothing. We have a response and a responsibility. And as a matter of fact, let me say this so boldly, that the church of Jesus Christ is the only one who has the answer to this. Congress doesn't have it, folks. The White House doesn't have it. Neither does the town hall or the town council or anybody else. They don't have the answer. We are the ones that have the answer. And can I go ahead and give you the answer? His name is Jesus. You say, well, if he's the answer, why does he fix it? Come up real close. Because you and I have failed. The church has been hamstrung. We are not effective, folks. Listen to me. We are not as effective as we could be. We could be much more effective. But let me tell you what's happened in the church. Instead of the church speaking out against this, it has embraced it. And now it is spouting it. 
And we're going to have a religious Marxism before long. So Lord, help us, okay? You didn't ask for all that, did you? That, I'm, I'm just telling you what goes on in a pastor's life. This goes on in our hearts. We look out and see people struggle with this, and we know there needs to be help. So help is coming. Help is coming. But we need to talk today about growth in our spiritual life. Let's concentrate for just a moment on this statement. If I am not pointing people to Jesus, then I am wasting my life. Could you agree with that? I, I would totally agree with it in my Christian life. If I'm not pointing people to Christ then more than likely I'm wasting my Christian life. Now, when we think about growth, we can think about it in one of two ways. We can think about it as you as an individual Christian growing to be more like Jesus, or we can think of it numerically, such as how many people we can fit in the doors at Trinity. Now, I do not want to think about it numerically because... It doesn't matter to me whether God keeps Trinity at 50 people or 5,000 people. That's, his, that's totally his business. Our responsibility is to be faithful to him, to preach his word, to do what he says, to be good administrators, to be good handlers of God's resources, and it's up to God to add the increase as we obey him. Now, I don't want us to stay 50. We're not 50. We're over 50. But the point is, it's not about the numbers it's about your life being changed to be more like our Lord. And if that's not happening in your life, today's message is meant to help you so that you leave here changed and you can get a new step in the right direction. So our goal is to help you as an individual grow in your relationship to Christ so that when you come here, in this church, you are like a magnet. You know what a magnet is when you put it right in the middle of a group of metal, right? It just pulls the things to it. People want to be like you. They, they, they know that your life has been transformed and they see that and they want to be like you. This is our goal and our prayer and our desire here is to have a healthy group of believers who can point people to Jesus and love and grow and connect and serve and reach. So how do we do this? What is the goal of our growth? I've said this before. It's to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 talk about God's plan. God foreknew us. He predetermined he predestined, by the way, the word predestined, predestination always in Scripture has to do with a believer being turned into the image of Jesus. What does God predestine for a believer that you will be like Jesus? Are, are we like Jesus? That's what God is predetermining. That's what he's predestined. And now we get to this part. Don't fall asleep on me. I'm, I'm giving you the technical stuff up front. But the moment that you trust Jesus, I like to say it this way, the moment you believe in Jesus for eternal life, the moment you recognize you're a sinner and Christ died for you and you accept Him and you believe in Him for eternal life, something happens to you. And that is the past block. The moment that you believe in Him Lewis Berry Schaefer said between 13 and 18 things happen in a believer's life and you don't feel one of them. They're all positional truths. They happen in the courthouse of God, in the courtroom. The moment you believe in Christ as Savior, one of the things that happens is you are declared righteous by God. A second thing that happens is you are imputed, you are given Jesus' righteousness. What does that mean? Not only are you forgiven of your sin, but you are given righteousness. You say, well, I didn't feel that. No, I didn't either. But this is positional truth. So when you believe in Jesus for eternal life, this and a whole list of other things happen to you that you don't even know about, do you? Baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit places you in the body of Christ. I could go down a whole list. But that's past truth. We call that positional truth. That is truth that is founded and grounded in the Word of God. Listen to me, believer. Are you all paying attention to me? 
If you don't understand those basic fundamental truths of the Christian life and you don't have the assurance of salvation, the assurance of forgiveness, the assurance of God's presence, if you don't have the assurance of answered prayer, if you don't have those assurances in your life and you don't know what God has done, you're going to struggle growing as a believer. One of the reasons God gave us His Word is so that we would know who our Father is. We would know who our Savior is and what He's done for us. You know, if you're a child, you want to know what the family has has done, right? You want to know who your Father is and who your Savior is. The problem in our Christian life comes from the moment we trust Christ Now our daily growth. I like to put the arrow right here because our present life is a crazy life. In other words, we are not exempt from pain, problems, sin, sickness, failure. We are not exempt from persecution. We are not exempt from tornadoes, natural disasters. If you want to go down the list, we are not exempt. And the problem comes is living the Christian life with with all of that information I shared that is truth about our past, how that works its way out in our daily life. I mean, listen to me. You might have a neighbor that is a total rascal that you live beside. Now, how do you deal with that? I have talked to people who don't even like to go home because of a thorny neighbor. Well, either you move Or you learn to be so nice to them, they can't be mean to you anymore. But there are things that happen in our life that cause us struggle. This morning in the early service, I let the audience start yelling out things that caused us to struggle in our growth as believers. And some of those were indifference, just blasé. Another was situations, circumstances in life like I just talked about a neighbor or perhaps somebody dies in your family and you get mad at God, you don't understand what God's doing, or you lose your job and you don't understand why God let you lose your job, or your house, uh, ha- something happens to it. and you I mean, all kinds of things, and people struggle trying to figure that out. But now we come to this huge dilemma what do we do with that? What do you do? How, how do you continue to grow as a believer so that you look more and more like Jesus when all of these things happen? One of the best answers that came that was a hindrance was control. And I really like that one. Sean, you get credit for that one, control. What that simply means is one of the reasons that we don't grow as a believer is we are unwilling to give Jesus full control of our life. Now, I'm going to say this, folks, and it's hard. Uh, You know, Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you need to know this. If you want to follow me, it's hard. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have a nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head because I'm following my Father. And if you want to follow me, it's tough, so you better think about what you're saying. But one of the things that causes believers not to grow is this, this, this separation. It's a whole message between the difference between believing on Jesus for eternal life and making Him Lord of life. Now, some people would say that those two are one and there's a big argument in theology about lordship salvation and I'm not even getting into it. Here's what I'm going to tell you from my own personal experience. There was a time in my life when I trusted Jesus for eternal life to forgive my sin, but I had not made Him Lord over my life. Are you hearing me? In other words, I had not got to the place where I trusted Jesus enough to say, Jesus, you have all of my finances. You have my house. You have my career. You have where I live. You have who I marry. You have everything about my life. I am totally giving it all over to you. 
I'm trusting you for direction. I, I see myself as just a channel, and you are funneling things through me, and I am simply a channel. I am a, I am a funnel passing from your hand to my hand into whoever's hand. And Lord, you direct my life. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. That's hard. And as a young believer, let me, let me go ahead and give you some stuff. I didn't share this with the early service. As a young believer, after I had accepted Christ and started studying for seminary, this is when transformation started happening in my life. I knew I wanted to go to Bible college. knew I wanted to really get serious with God. No matter what it took, I was willing to make it right. If I had offended somebody in the past, if I had done something wrong, I didn't care Point out my sin and I would make it right. God had totally transformed me. And I remember what that was like. And I tell you, if you've ever had a Christian experience like that, when you know that you're right with God, oh my, how it energizes you. You know it's not about you. It's about God pointing out ugly in your life. And you being willing to, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and make it right. This is where we struggle. Now listen to me, folks. Control of our life is an issue that every believer struggles with. Because as Greg read this morning, that's what we say we have to live by faith. We have to turn it over. And you know, sometimes, by the way, we, we think that we know a little better than God, don't we? I mean, we think we've lived a little longer. We've seen things and we know how things work. And we try to convince God that we know better. Well, those are some great answers and all of them are true. But let me tell you the one I want to focus on this morning. What is the number one, in my opinion, hindrance to individual spiritual growth? What do you think it is? Sin. Sin. So when we think about this, I'm going to skip that because I'll get off on it. When we think about sin, this is the statement. One of the reasons that many Christians do not grow is because they do not know how to deal with sin. In other words, after you believe in Jesus for eternal life and you sin, you don't know what to do with it. Or... Maybe you do know what to do with it and you're unwilling to fix it after becoming a believer. Now notice this second clause. This causes the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life as an individual. It, it causes it to shift. And His ministry goes away from empowering you to convicting you. You see, I said this a week or so ago. A lot of times believers don't understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. We don't understand this. And the Holy Spirit's role now changes from empowering and equipping to convincing and convicting. And the Holy Spirit is waiting for you to respond by confession and admission before He cleanses and restores. Now, I gave this illustration earlier and I'll give it again let's think for a moment those of us who are married because this happens every married couple argues okay we all have disagreements please if you have this mirage in your life that you are going to either get married and you're so in love you're not going to argue or you look around at people that you think are so spiritual and godly and they don't ever have a disagreement or an argument Please, please, for the sake of Christ, erase that and get it completely out of your memory. You have two people who are both, are you ready? I'm going to offend you this morning, who are both sinners to the core and rotten to the core, two sinners who come together and live in the same house to be one, both want their own way, and both have to now cooperate. Now, the wonderful thing about being a believer and being married is we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us to empower us and enable us to have unity.
But I want to give you an example, and this is a real-life example. Let's say that the man and the wife get into an argument, and they carry it through the evening and get into the bed. And they're laying there in the bed, and the believing husband and believing wife, they're getting ready for church tomorrow, by the way. And as they lay there, this man begins to think to himself, you know, I'm, I'm the man of the home. And even though I don't read the Bible to my family and do everything like I should, I know I'm the spiritual leader and people look up to me. And me and my wife got into it today and it was over something really silly, but because I wanted to win, I didn't give up. I really do think I was right, but the problem was I overstepped the bounds and I went too far and I totally offended her and she's the one that's wrong. And I know I should say that I'm sorry to her and make things right, but I'm waiting on her. She's so arrogant and proud, she won't do it. She's laying over there knowing it. And the Holy Spirit starts saying to us, not audibly now, not audibly. See, you're trying to pray to go to bed. The Holy Spirit's saying, you, humble yourself. It's not about who wins this argument. It's about unity in your home and not letting the devil sleep in your bed tonight. Humble yourself, lean over and say, Honey, can I have your hand for a minute? We got into an argument today and I was wrong by the way I treated you. And I want to ask you to forgive me. Please forgive me. Now, as a man, it's up to your wife to forgive you. She she either forgives you or she chooses not to. You can't change that. That's totally up to her. But as a man, that's your responsibility to do that. But let's say, for instance, that you sit there in the bed and you, as my dad used to say, stub up. <clears throat> I'm not going to do that. I won't do it until she does. Did you know that as, as a married couple, if you think I'm making this up, you can write down Ephesians four twenty-eight through 32. If as a married couple you fail to get that right in your life, the text in Ephesians 4 says that you give Satan a foothold. Do you know what a foothold is? It's, it's something like a step. It's something like where a dog or an animal can dig its way down. A football player, when he's getting ready to get in a three-point stance, he, he gets his foot and he's, he's getting him a place where he can get some traction. Now, are you listening? If we don't confess and we don't restore our relationship... We are allowing the devil to get in a three-point stance and dig in and get ready to hit us. Now, I'm going to tell you something else that happens in the Christian life that we don't understand, and that's this. If we push that to the side and we fail to deal with that, that is buried, but it's not forgotten. Do you hear me? And in lots and lots of marriage counseling, you can find things that are buried way back. You all remember the old country song Randy Travis used to sing? Digging up bones. Digging up bones. Consuming things that are better left alone. I don't even want to remember the rest of it. Why do, why do we remember? Anyway, digging up those old things that are never forgotten, never dealt with, or never forgiven. Now let me come to the Christian life and tell you how that applies. When we do that in our life, whether, whether it's conscious or unconscious, are you all hearing me? The Holy Spirit begins to convict and convince in our life. And when we know that we should do something and we willingly or stubbornly say no to the Spirit, His ministry changes from empowering us and helping us grow and mature, his ministry changes to convicting. And what, is, what does convicting mean? Convicting means he begins to show us our sin. He begins to let us see that we're not right with him. Are you all hearing me for a minute? We don't enjoy church like we used to. We become critical we become self-centered. We become everything is about us. I hope y'all are hearing me. This is so true. And, and the joy of our Christian life 
It's not about Jesus or pointing people to Jesus anymore. It gets completely off focus. All because of failing to deal with sin. Now, I have known Christians before, and you, you have to hear me. I have known Christians before who have had walls of sin in their life that they have failed to deal with. They have preached sermons. They have sung. They have played instruments. They have taught classes. They have led groups. They have done things like you could not imagine. And it was nothing, nothing but a facade. They did not deal with sin. I know it because they told me. That is not God's desire for our life. What is it? Well, here is the answer. I'm going to give you three steps today to cleanse the sin from your life. But first, before we do that, turn to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm 32. Three steps. This lays the groundwork for the steps, okay? Are you there this morning? You say, well, he finally got to the Bible. Yeah, I did. But I'm going to tell you something. This is good. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Look at these four words for sin, and let me explain them. Verse 1, transgressions. This has the idea of disobedience and rebellion toward God. What is rebellion? Rebellion is when you know what's right, and you go ahead and do it anyway. Transgression, rebellion, sin, the second word, misconduct, faulty action. Sin can be either intentional or unintentional. You see, folks, we sin so much we don't even know it. There are things that we should do in our life that we don't do, and they are sin. There are people that the Holy Spirit puts on our heart to help. There are things that God burdens us to do as a believer. And we know without a shadow of a doubt, God, the Holy Spirit wants us to do that. And we don't do it. That is called a sin of omission. We fail to act. That is the second description of sin. Look at the third. Iniquity. Iniquity. It has the idea of wrong or evil. And then the fourth word, verse 2, deceit. I want to spend some time on this because it's so important. Deceit has the idea of inward lies, hypocrisy, or fraud. It has to do with the inner part of the character, the part nobody can see. Do you all remember last Sunday's message when the Pharisee invited Jesus and the woman came and started cleaning his feet? And the man, the text says, the man thought to himself, Look at that woman. And Jesus, without saying a word, the text said, knowing what was in his heart, he shared a story. Folks, deceit is what is bound up in our heart. And I want to tell you something this morning. If you don't understand how deceitful you really are, down in the core of your being, you don't understand the sin nature. Are you listening to me this morning? I must, I must be up here by myself. If you don't know how deceitful we are, there are people this morning, I know this, who are filling churches, who have a secret life on their phone and computer. They are addicted to pornography. And they are coming to church and they're trying to do this and do that. And they are failing to deal with the issue. There are believers in Jesus for eternal life who are addicted to drugs and to drink to the point that that is what numbs the pain in their life. And their life is so miserable that they have to have that 
buzz and that addiction. If they don't have that fulfilled, they are miserable. There are other people who have sins, and we could go down a whole litany of lists. People who are refusing to do things that God wants them to do. But these are inner things. Do you know, I I was told a story one time about someone who hated someone. And the other person never knew they hated them. Can you imagine living life with someone hating you so bad? And you don't even know it? And when this person finally explained what they had been doing and little things, it was unbelievable, the deceit in the human heart. And hear me closely, folks. Every one of us are like that. Every one of us. Please take the most spiritual person in the world that you want to take this morning. Let me promise you, they are like that. Except for the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this verse. The heart is deceitful. Our word. Above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Aren't you glad for the next verse? I, the Lord, know the heart. And you know what? He loves us anyway. Now, do you see yourself this morning as a sinner who's plagued by transgression, sin, iniquity, and deceit? Now, let me read this again. And this may just make a Baptist go, Glory to God! Listen. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no hypocrisy. Blessed is that man. Listen to what David says in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I read this past week that 80% You all catch this. 80%, I don't know if this is true. 80% of all sickness is psychosomatic. What does that mean? That means that the person feels this in their inner being, and as a result of feeling it and thinking it, it is lived out. You know, I hear people say all the time, well, he, he has anger sickness. I'm, I'm sorry, anger sickness? Can we please put a thermometer in anger and measure and see, does it run a fever? Uh, everything is a sickness today. But can we test it and see, is it in fact a, a germ? Maybe it's a sin. We're treating it as a sickness. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. I shared this this morning. I can remember one time. See, I, I, I like to share personal things with you because I want you to know I'm a sinner. I don't say that proud. I know who I am. And 20 years in the pastor has shown me what I am. But I can remember... God wanting me to change attitudes and things in my life and me being unwilling to do it. Are you all hearing me? No, God, I just, no, Lord, just let me have that just for a while. Are you listening? I can remember dreaming. Dreaming about what I needed to change. Horrible dreams. You say, well, Were those real? I believe that God invaded my sleep to point things out in my life that were wrong. 
And I thank Him that He did. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Imagine an old piece of grass that doesn't get any water or nourishment. It just shrivels. Look in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And look at this, and you forgave. God, I held on to that so long, day and night. And David's sin was terrible, by the way. I held on to it, thinking I was hiding it from you. And you made me miserable, God. And then I confessed. And look what the text says. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The picture here is of sin and problems being walled up like a flood against a dam wall. And waiting and waiting and waiting until it can't hold it anymore and it just bursts. Don't a lot of Christians live our life like this? We wait and wait and wait and we don't deal with our sin until the marriage is about to explode, we're about to lose the job, we're at the end of life, because we we don't want to deal with the sin. And we're not growing as a believer. Verse 7, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. Verse 8, now God is going to speak. Some commentators believe David is speaking here. I take this as God. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I see your life. I see your secret life. I see everything about you. I see your attitudes towards your mom and dad if you're a child. I see your attitudes as a college student. I see your attitudes as a high school student. I see your desires and your longings and your passions. I see those. And I care about you. I will instruct you and teach you in the way. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What a sermon. My eye upon you. You never leave the eye of the Lord. Look at verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule. I grew up on a farm and I remember our neighbor had a mule. That was the most stubborn animal I've ever seen in my life. That mule was big enough to do what it wanted to do and stubborn enough not to do what you wanted it to do. If it wanted to eat, it would follow food. If it didn't want to eat, it didn't care what you brought it. You could beat it. You could do whatever you wanted to that mule and it would stand right there. But one of the ways that you could get it to work was take a shock prod. They have these in the cattle yards. And you give that mule a shot and get back from his feet because he'll give it to you. But you get him in a head and you put a bit in his mouth and something up around his jaws where you can pull on him and you can make him go where you want. Listen to what God tells us as believers. Isn't it amazing he uses this terminology? Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or it will stay, it will not stay near to you. Don't don't be like a mule. God wants you to stop something. He wants you to confess something. He wants you to do something. Stop fighting. It is not worth it. Stop fighting him. It's a hindrance to our growth. Look in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why? Because our sins are forgiven. Now go right back to the top of Psalm 32 and write this verse down. Are you ready? 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. And now... We're going to talk about life transforming. You ready? Three steps. Three steps to overcome sin and guilt in your life. Every Christian should memorize this verse because it is the one that keeps us in fellowship with our Savior. 
What is this verse? 1 John 1, 9. Listen to what it says. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know believers who have sinned and confessed and they feel dirty. I have actually had people share with me they do not feel like they are forgiven. They, they grapple with, I don't think I could really be forgiven and I feel dirty. I feel dirty. And you know, if you have confessed your sin and you still feel dirty, I'm going to help you this morning. But if you came in here this morning and you feel dirty because you're wallowing in sin, don't you leave that way. That is not God's desire for our life. He doesn't want you leaving that way. There are three steps to overcoming guilt and receiving cleansing. Step one, we must confess something. Sin. The word confess here is a Greek word, a big long one, which simply means this, to say the same thing about sin that God does. Now let me stop because we live in a postmodern world and let me ask you this question. What is sin? What is sin? And the answer is anything God says is sin. That is what sin is. It's not what other people say sin is. It's what God says sin is. One writer goes further and says, Any man who knows to do right and does it not, to him it is sin. So there's a working of conscience and then there is written revelation of what is sin. Now, I was shared with earlier a story from Christianity Today. This publication has went almost completely liberal so that I refer to it as Christianity Astray. Some of you don't even know what magazine I'm talking about. But they're writing completely from liberalism. And one article in there, this man begins to write, and this is what he said. He said that the, one of the number one problems that pastors are going to be facing today is the problem of cohabitation because people don't understand marriage. And so he says that the new trend in the churches is that people just start living together. Now, I want you to hear me for a minute. Please hear me in love. Christians need to understand what, what marriage is and what God says He will bless and what God says He'll judge. You need to write down Hebrews chapter 13 at the end of that book. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to turn there. But we don't understand sometimes what sin is. Listen to what the writer to Hebrews says about marriage. I am in Hebrews 13. Paul, or the writer to Hebrews, it's not Paul, by the way. It has left me. <clears throat> marriage is honorable above all things. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now stop right there. Stop. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, one biological man, one biological woman... That marriage bed is not defiled. Anything outside of that covenant marriage bed is defiled. Are y'all hearing me? Everything outside of that. Now, don't listen to what the preacher says. Read what God says. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He will judge any sex outside of the confines of marriage. This man in this article seemed to be saying that pastors 
were either afraid to say this or, or wouldn't. And I don't ever want you to come to Trinity and not understand what God says is sin and what He will judge and what He won't. And listen to me, folks. I have never seen an op-ed in the Bible where God has changed His mind. And if that makes us intolerant, if that makes me mean, if that makes me whatever, I have to stand before Almighty God one day and I have to give an account to Him for what I say about His Word and what He says. And I don't mean this in any arrogant way at all, but I am a whole lot more afraid of Him than I am any man or woman alive. And God says He will judge anything outside of the confines of marriage. That means premarital, extramarital, homosexual, transgender. You go on down the list, God will judge it. He may not do it this evening, but He will judge. And you know what we have to do? We have to confess our sins. What are sins? They're whatever God says is wrong. So there's something we have to confess. Lord, I have sinned against you. But there's a second step, and that is there's something we must believe. Look at the text. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Faithful and just. You should circle those two words. God is faithful. When we say that God is faithful, what do we mean by that? We mean that God does what He says He will do. God is faithful. If God says He's going to do this, He is going to do it. But He's not just faithful. He's also just. The word here has the idea of being righteous. You see, what He did in order to forgive our sin was what? He put the second person of the Godhead on the cross to take the full penalty for our sin. And He punished Him. You say, well, that is some kind of theology you have. Yeah, it's called biblical theology. It's called the holiness of God that man doesn't even understand today. It's called the righteousness of God. It's what God had to do in order to allow humans in His presence. God had to pour out the full wrath of eternity and hell and the lake of fire on His Son so that He didn't pour it out on me and you. And the cross has a continuing effect. Yes, all of our sin, past, present, and future has been taken care of, but there is a continuing effect, and that is the growth in our Christian life. And when we sin and we don't admit that to God, the role of the Spirit goes from making us grow to convicting and convincing. But when we confess our sin and we're honest with God and we lay it out there about who we are and say the same thing about sin as God does, what does the text say? There's something we have to believe. He is faithful and He's just to forgive. And when we do that, folks, the third step is we have to receive something. And what do we receive? Well, look at the text. Don't, don't take it from my part. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to... What does your text say? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us. You know, I can say this this morning on the authority of the Word of God. If you, as a believer, confess your sin to God, He is faithful to forgive. He's just to forgive. And He will cleanse you. You can leave this service this morning feeling clean. But you have to lay it down you have to confess you have to let it go and whatever the sin is whatever it is that's gripping you and holding you and has you in bondage 
whatever the sin is, you have to lay it down. And if you lay it down, that is step one to growth. I want you to bow your heads this morning, every head bowed, every eye closed, even those online this morning. And I want you to think about leaving transformed this morning. I want you to do this. I want you to ask God to search your heart and life and point out whatever is in your life that's displeasing to Him and His sin. And it doesn't take long for Him to do this. If he's pointed out whatever that is to you this morning and he has made this obvious, maybe it's a relationship you are failing to restore. Maybe it's something that you've stolen. Maybe it's something you've taken. Maybe it's something you are addicted and enslaved to. Maybe it's some secret in your heart, something you've been looking at that you shouldn't. Whatever it is in your life that the Holy Spirit is pointing out, that you need to change this morning. I pray, oh God, right now, blessed Holy Spirit, point out in the lives of people what it is that you want us to change and give us the power to confess that to you and to ask for forgiveness and then to accept cleansing, to understand that when we do ask for forgiveness, that you clean us. And once again, we are cleansed and in a position to grow. So, oh God, do what only you can do this morning. And that is transform the heart and the life of every person here. And help us to get serious in our Christian life about growing into the image of our Savior. And we'll thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.